If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for January 12, 2020. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show, where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. Among the other things you can find at uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com is a link to our other podcast, in which we did a brand new episode today as well. That's the Individual One podcast, dealing with all things related to politics and Donald Trump, and which features... A fantastic extensive interview I did with my good friend, Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth. So make sure you check that out if you have any interest in the subject. A lot to get to in this episode of the World According to Zig podcast. I want to start with a topic that began last week, which was attacks on me by a bunch of people on Twitter, largely because everyone perceived that I have a new gig at The Bulwark, which is a conservative anti-Trump website. I wrote my first column for them uh, a week ago. It was essentially about my holiday experiences with Trump supporters. And the initial reaction to that was quite positive. And then uh, my critics and my enemies, and I have many apparently, (laughs) uh, decided that this was time to pounce on John Ziegler because... God forbid uh, he have a new platform, a platform that was facilitated because of the fact that a bizarre, insane new California law limits me to writing 35 articles for any one outlet. Therefore, my gig as a senior columnist at Mediate was going to be greatly reduced this year in an election year. So the bulwark said, hey, why don't you uh, come write for us? So I did that, and this scared a lot of people, apparently. And so... Last uh, Sunday, or actually it was Saturday, I guess it was, last Saturday night during the the Patriots' loss to the uh, Titans, who are now bizarrely in the conference championship game, uh, I was in the midst of just being bombarded from every possible direction, including by the fiancé of Brooke Nevels, who is the accuser of Matt Lauer, uh, with whom I have become uh, quite... uh, (laughs) Uh, embroiled in his situation, having spoke to him now, I don't even know how many hours, at least 50 or 60 hours, both in person and on the telephone, and having written several articles 
uh, providing um, some at least some of his side of that story, which I find to be far more credible uh, than her side. But he was really the one that facilitated it. I didn't even know who he was. He attacked me out of the blue, said, uh, eat shit and die, Ziegler, and then a whole bunch of uh, liberal. Uh, it was a bizarre combination of, of liberal blue check marks on Twitter and Trump supporters who also found uh, the uh, idea of going after me too enticing to resist. So there, they perceived that there was blood in the water and there was a feeding frenzy, uh, a shark attack. And so every little thing of my uh, past, most almost all of it, completely misconstrued, totally out of context, allegations that were totally bogus, things that I really should be praised for, like, for instance, my defense of Michael Jackson or Matt Lauer or uh, Jerry Sandusky and Joe Paterno at Penn State, all of which I know exceedingly more about than those who were criticizing me. I mean, it's not even close and all of whom I am very right to defend, all of whom I believe are uh, innocent of what has been claimed about them. Uh, and so that's the upside-down world we're living in, where I'm now being brutally mocked and attacked for things that uh, I, in a rational world I would be praised for, not that I need praise, but it's just so insane-making that the exact opposite is the case. And I did not mention in last week's World According to Zig podcast one of the subjects that I was being attacked on because at the time, I naively or stupidly didn't even think it rated because uh, it's just so stupid. And uh, this week, that ended up becoming a major issue. Uh, and, and this is so strange and, and so off the wall, bizarre, even for my uh, career standards, which are pretty off the wall and strange to begin with. Uh, but this deals with David Foster Wallace. Now, I have a lot of very weird, almost Forrest Gumpian-type stories in my life and career. In fact, uh, someone was going to write a book about this uh, about a year ago, and then they bailed for reasons I don't even want to get into. They have nothing to do with the content, because it's a very compelling story. I mean, I, I do have a as I've mentioned, a far as gumpy in experience with a lot of very high-profile people in a lot of high-profile situations. And one of those is clearly David Foster Wallace. Now, for those who do not know who David Foster Wallace is, and by the way, when I met him, I didn't know who David Foster Wallace was either, which in retrospect is hilarious because I should have because he was an exceedingly famous and well-regarded author. He was considered the genius of his generation mainly for a book called Infinite Jest, which is like a thousand pages or something ridiculous. Uh, but in literary circles, he was considered a genius. And this was a guy who, when I first came to Los Angeles as a talk show host at KFI, I got a letter from David Foster Wallace. Now, <laughs> I know this sounds ridiculous <laughs> in an era where we Google everything. But this would have been uh, like 2004-ish. And uh, for some reason, I never even bothered to Google the guy's name. He wrote me a letter asking whether or not he could shadow me because he wanted to do a story on conservative talk radio. And I think I haven't looked at the letter uh recently it's funny i i still have the letter somewhere but i had so little regard for the letter this is one of the more humorous elements of the story the letter for some reason stayed on near my telephone for quite a while not because it was important in fact because i thought it was so 
lacking in importance, that it has doodles and phone numbers all over it that have nothing to do with David Foster Wallace. It became like my notepad for some reason. I don't even know why. So this this letter is now a mess, this, which some people might consider to be a collector's item because it's David Foster Wallace asking me to shadow uh, him, me, to him to shadow me because he he was thinking about doing this on Rush Limbaugh and decided instead to do it on me because he I think wanted someone who was more accessible was more likely to say yes and it, it was more interesting doing it from the standpoint of somebody who was not a celebrity superstar like Rush Limbaugh and when I got the letter I thought well I don't care. I got nothing to hide. I also didn't take it very seriously because I never heard of the guy. Because I'm a nonfiction guy in general. I don't do a lot of pleasure reading, especially as a talk show host. All you're really doing is reading the news that day, and you're burnt out on reading. So I had never read a David Foster Wallace book. I had never heard of him. I stupidly never Googled him. I said, sure. What the hell? Uh, why don't you come and do this uh, shadowing for a couple of months, whatever you need, and we'll see what happens. I had zero expectation that anything would be coming of this. I certainly had zero expectation that 16 years later, people would still be talking about this in major ways. So here's what happens. So he shows up to shadow me, and I am exceedingly unimpressed by this guy. Again, I don't know. Do I do not know who he is? Uh, he is unkempt. Uh, it, it's clear he hasn't showered in quite a long time. He smells. He's got uh, bad eating habits. Uh, there's nothing about him that is impressive, at all. And I have a lot of weaknesses. I have several strengths. One of my strengths normally is being able to see talent in others. It's, to me, this is not that difficult, but for some people it is. But I have a pretty darn good detector. I have a great bullshit detector, and I have a great detector for people who have it. Whatever the hell it is. That special quality. That special something. that That's a person who has it. Whether it's talent, charisma, whatever. David Foster Wallace did not even register on that radar. David Foster Wallace, I thought, was far more likely to be a homeless person than to be the genius of his generation. And so this facilitated another <laughs> weird series of events, but because I thought so little of him, I still never bothered to research him, <laughs> which is incredibly dumb on my part. But I had so little confidence that this guy was ever going to do an article that really saw the light of day. I really looked at this as almost being useless. Like it was all just a lark. Again, in retrospect, this is insane. And it's largely on me. So I go through this process of two or three months with him coming to work basically every day and, uh, and and looking what was going on, interviewing me, interviewing my producers, hanging out in the studio during the show, the whole bit. And the first time I ever thought there was even a semblance of credibility to this was he, when he finished, he wanted to do an exit interview with me. And he took me to a very nice restaurant and, you know, said, order whatever you want. It's on my expense uh, uh, account. 
And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, maybe this is legitimate. Because <laughs> if I'm getting a steak dinner out of this deal, then somebody's paying. And that means that some legitimate uh, outlet may be running this. To my recollection, he never said anything about the Atlantic. He may have. I don't remember that. But the Atlantic at the time was a monthly magazine with a lot of prestige. And so a lot of time passes. I mean, a lot of time. And I even remember very specifically calling David Foster Wallace and almost mocking him like, hey, dude, whatever happened to that article you were going to write? Because I was always cynical that this was all bullshit to begin with. Uh, and uh, he assured me that, no, no, uh, everything's on track. This thing is going to uh, run fairly soon. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Whatevs. So uh, sometime after that, I get a phone call from Atlantic Magazine. So at this point, I must have known that it was Atlantic Magazine, or The Atlantic, I think it was known at the time, that uh, was going to run this uh, piece by David Foster Wallace. And it was from a fact checker. And what was really strange about this was the fact checking was incredibly minimal. To my recollection, and I have a pretty good memory in general, I'm not as good as it used to be, but still pretty darn good memory, and I have a very strong recollection of this phone call. To, to my memory, they asked me three or four very simple questions, and that was it. And I specifically remember one of them being, were you the Bucks County Courier Times High School Golfer of the Year in 1984? <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I was. I shouldn't have been, uh, but I was. And I'm thinking, you cannot be serious. I, I mean, this is the fact check. So I'm thinking... I'm going to be a minor part of whatever article this is, or it's going to be a very small article because if me being the Bucks County Career Times High School Golfer of the Year in 1984 at Holy Ghost Prep uh, just outside of Philadelphia is is in the article, then clear and, and then worthy of fact-checking, clearly this is a, not a big deal. That's what I'm still thinking. This is not a big deal. And so I kind of laugh, and I'm like, okay, whatever. Okay, whatevs again. And then all of a sudden, uh, and I had no heads up on this at all, all of a sudden, out comes the Atlantic Magazine. And on the cover is an artist's depiction. Now, I would love to know the story behind this. This is 2005. I will probably never know the story behind this. But there's an artist's depiction of... A talk show host angrily, uh, basically screaming into a microphone. Now, what's interesting about this is it kind of looks like me, but it's not me. And it's not from a photograph, and it's not from an artist, because there was never an artist that was part of this project. It's not like there was an artist in our studio that was like Leroy Neiman ask uh, depicting me in a character almost a caricature form uh, as I'm doing my show now to be clear I'm sure that what's depicted on the cover of that Atlantic magazine is fairly accurate <laughs> regarding at times when I get very agitated especially back then when I was young uh, and so I don't have a major problem with the artist depiction it's just I'm curious as to where the hell it came from 
And the title on the cover is The Host. And then it's the subtitle is something like, uh, you know, a deep dive into right-wing talk radio, something along those lines. Now, my name is not on there, and I'm not even 100% sure that uh, – this was really supposed to be me. I, I, again, I'm I, I'm I'm still uncertain about how that whole uh, cover came about. I would love to know that story. But inside the magazine was a, was an extraordinarily long piece where it's about ninety percent about me. It's twenty three pages long. Twenty three pages <laughs> now. 23 pages in a major magazine is almost unheard of. And what's really odd about it is the way in which it is written. You can find this online. In fact, the which I'll get to momentarily, The Atlantic republished it on the 10th anniversary. This is how big of a deal this became, largely because of events that would follow. So it's 23 pages. It's got these little bubbles or b- balloons uh, all over the piece that are like thought bubbles. Uh, you might think of them as parenthetical uh, statements, that, but you, you basically almost need a chart to be able to read the article. It's so strangely done, and I've always believed that if somebody named uh, uh, David uh, Wallace Foster, as opposed to David Foster Wallace, <laughs> had submitted this to The Atlantic, they would have said, uh, please come back when you learn how to write. <laughs> This is not up to our standards because it was it was just so all over the place. But the first paragraph has, and I, I haven't gone back to look at it recently because it's got a lot of negative memories for me, though not completely negative. Uh, but I have a very strong recollection that there were at least three blatant inaccuracies in the first paragraph of the 23-page article. And it starts off with my trek from Louisville, Kentucky to Los Angeles, California. Now, none of them are that important. Three blatant inaccuracies in the first paragraph of a 23-page story. That's a problem. That's a problem for your credibility as a reporter and what, you know, if you're willing to make up stuff about that uh, that's not that important, what else did you make up? And by and large, my, my takeaway from the 23-page uh, essay, expose, if you will, was basically this. That David Foster Wallace, being a liberal elite person, wanted to do a hatchet job on talk radio. And he spent two or three months with me and found me to be more likable than he expected. Now, he had very low expectations. <laughs> uh, and so I think... He decided, you know what? I'm only going to do a half, half a hack, hack, hack job here, hatchet job. I'm only going to do half a hit piece on Ziggler because I found him to be somewhat engaging. He's really good at what he does. He's not that bad of a guy. He's got quite a history. And so, you know, and look, I'm a big boy. Even back then, I had near asbestos skin. It's not as asbestos as it is now uh, at 52 years old, almost 53. But I, I, I don't care about people criticizing me so much. Uh, and so that part didn't bother me. I found it almost humorous that it was clear that he partially liked me. 
And I didn't think that much of it because I didn't know how much impact this was going to have because while at this point I found out who David Foster Wallace was, I still didn't have the full picture of who David Foster Wallace was, and I didn't know what was going to happen next. So here's what happens next. So I call up David Foster Wallace, and I say, David, uh, you know, <laughs> I see that you've got finally almost a year later maybe even more than that you've gotten uh, the article published in the atlantic i would like to interview you about it on the radio show on kfi in los angeles at that time the number one talk station in america now in my mind this is a no-brainer somebody gives you two or three months of access basically no questions asked, asked, give you everything you want for a 23-page cover story in Atlantic Magazine, the least you can do is at least a short interview to answer a few questions about the nature of the piece. He refused. In fact, I don't even think he considered it, and, and he gave the lamest excuse ever that he was under contract to only do one promotional interview for the piece and that he had already done that. I'm like, really? Really? It's just flat out ridiculous. And I lost it on David Foster Wallace. I lost it probably more than I've ever lost it on a major public figure in my life. By the way, that's saying something because I have lost it on several major public figures in my life, some of whom I actually consider to be friends, some of whom I still consider to be friends to this day. But I lost it so much that my recollection is that he hung up on me. Somebody hung up. I, I don't know if I hung up, but some there was a the, the call ended in a hang up. And here's what made it different than a normal situation where I might lose it on somebody who's screwing me over. I actually felt so badly about it, I called him back to apologize. And he didn't answer the phone, of course, because the guy was, you know, afraid of even talking to me on the air. He wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna take that phone call after what I after the ass ripping I had just given him. And so I apologized on his message machine. And my recollection is I have I never had any contact with him after that. Now, this story uh, is was immediately talked about within literary circles in a huge way because it's The Atlantic, it's David Foster Wallace, it's a very long piece, it's an unusual piece. And over the years, I would run into people who thought that this was the greatest thing that they've ever read. And the most memorable thing they've ever read, with only slight exaggeration. People like Joe Scarborough. Joe Scarborough of MSNBC, back when he was an actual conservative, uh, he was fascinated by the piece and the fact that I was the focus of the piece. Many years later, when I interviewed David Frum, who works for The Atlantic as, a, as an editor and a, as a columnist, I, I met him in a Beverly Hills uh, hotel to interview him uh, for my podcast, and the first thing David says to me, and this is the first time we've met, is, you know, that David Foster Wallace piece was uh, amazing. Uh, and, and then he says, and I don't have the exact quote memorized, but it was something along the lines of, you do understand that 100 years from now, the only thing anyone will know about you is the David Foster Wallace piece. That's how big of a deal this is. 
I was like, okay, well, at least at least somebody will know something about me, even if if it's you know at least partially critical, and uh, and pro- provides a profile of me that I don't think is fully accurate. It, it, there's many mistakes in it. Uh, it's definitely a biased view. But hey, look, I mean, there've been worse hit pieces for reasons that I've already explained. Now, here's where things get really interesting. You know, normally a piece like this, even back in 2005, when our attention spans were more than 15 minutes long. Gets forgotten pretty quickly, but a couple of things transpired. Number one, David Foster Wallace uses this piece, and I don't know what his deal with the Atlantic was. He didn't ask me for permission. I'm not sure. I mean, legally, I'm sure he didn't have to, but from a courtesy standpoint, you would have thought I would have at least gotten a heads up. He uses the entire piece, or at least some form of it, as the last chapter in his book called "Consider the Lobster." So if you if you you know you can either get this online or if you're really interested you know get a copy of Consider the Lobster and it's the last chapter in his book which further elevates the uh, the notoriety of the piece. Well, then it turns out that that's his last book because he kills himself and he kills himself about two at most three years after uh, this piece was done. And when he killed himself, obviously a lot of people were curious about my take on this. And, uh, and it's important to point out that he had very publicly stated uh, that he had, was having problems with writer's block and depression. And so, you know, as is usually the case, when people kill themselves, those that are close to the situation were not that surprised. For other reasons, I have to say, I was not that surprised either. And But the reasons for my not being surprised at his suicide were different than other people's. My theory, and it's just a theory based upon having spent two or three months with the guy, been in a foxhole with him, having experienced the way he handled me asking for an interview, which to me showed he was afraid uh, of me and afraid of doing an interview with me. And he, and he was terrified that I was going to slice him and dice him and expose him for having written a very inaccurate article, at least from a factual standpoint. Uh I believed that the guy was not the genius as he was being portrayed to be. And if you look at the history of geniuses or perceived geniuses, a lot of them end up killing themselves. Now, you could argue that's because the genius itself is related to some semblance of mental illness or depression, and it's just too much pressure, and they end up taking their lives at far too young an age. That's certainly possible. But to me, part part of the equation here, and this was just my perception. It's an educated perception. I wouldn't bet, to, to use a poor analogy, I wouldn't bet my life on it since we're talking about suicide. But I do feel it's a legitimate perspective based upon real-world experience with him. I believe he killed himself because he was terrified of being revealed as a fraud that he was being perceived as a genius and he had all this acclaim and he didn't really feel like that was legitimate and he had writer's block and if you can no longer be a genius 
the next best thing is to kill yourself it will be presumed that that actually confirms your genius and then for all time you will be a genius and your legacy will be a genius snuffed out too soon rather than a guy who wasn't really a genius got you know lightning in a bottle wrote one book that everyone really loved and was mo mostly a media creation and turned out to be a fraud again did, it, did i ever talk to him about killing himself no but that was my perception of, an, of a narrative that made the most sense about the guy I knew, David Foster Wallace. Well, if we fast forward to 2014, a movie about David Foster Wallace comes out. Now, it's a very sympathetic movie. Very sympathetic. But the trailer had at the very end of it a line that I found to be incredibly fascinating and very very relevant now it is possible I, I underline possible i do not believe that this is the most likely scenario but it is possible because i had written about this on my own web page and it had created you know minor dust up because that was before i was even on twitter uh and so it wasn't as easy to attack me back then uh, but I had written an, an article about my theory on David Foster Wallace's suicide and my experience with him. And I had referenced this fear of being revealed as a fraud. So imagine my uh, surprise and my sense of vindication when at the end of the 2 minute and 45 second trailer in the about the very sympathetic movie involving david foster wallace after his suicide this is several years after his suicide this line from the david foster wallace character gets uttered in the trailer the more people think you're really great the bigger the fear of being a fraud is really really now in case you weren't quite able to pick that up again here it is one more time the trailer of the very sympathetic David Foster Wallace movie called The End of the Tour, the David Foster Wallace character at the end of this trailer says, The more people think you're really great, the bigger the fear of being a fraud is. Now, I took that as full vindication of my theory. Doesn't mean my theory is correct. It means that it's legitimate. It has been legitimized even in the trailer of a very sympathetic movie about David Foster Wallace. So that's the very, very long backstory to what happened this week. So in the midst of being attacked last week uh, on, on all sorts of different fronts, all because uh, people are trying to deplatform me and get the bulwark to not uh, continue to, to run my columns, and I have no idea what the status of that is. I'm sure I'll talk about that in, in future weeks. I have no idea, literally zero idea. Uh, but with regard to what was happening in the midst of that attack, somebody tweeted at me the David Foster Wallace essay. And I responded, uh, you know, something along the lines of laugh out loud. There are three or four blatant inaccuracies in the first paragraph. And oh, by the way, the guy killed himself not long afterwards, uh, very credible. Uh, and in, when I, in, in ensuing tweets, I said, you know, it's the issue of his suicide is relevant 
to his credibility, though not as relevant, that's important to point out, as not as relevant as the inaccuracies. And of course, my critics went, oh, oh my God, oh my God, he's such an asshole, I can't believe David Foster Wallace, he's so insensitive about suicide. Well, what most of these people have no clue about is, one, my experience with David Foster Wallace, two, the issue of, the, of my theory on the fraud that I just illustrated has been vindicated and why that was relevant to his suicide and therefore relevant to the article. Because one of the things that happens when you are perceived as a genius, right? I've seen this happen before. When you are a genius in the creative realm, especially when it comes to nonfiction or nonfiction-esque content, the problem becomes that the real world isn't that interesting. So in order to keep upping the ante, you must either exaggerate or make shit up. By the way, you know where this is, you know who else is uh, is experiencing this right now? Ronan Farrow. Cuz Ronan Farrow has to come up with a, a a new Harvey Weinstein. And I believe that's what he did to Matt Lauer. Because Matt Lauer was the most vulnerable celebrity that he could go after and fit his agenda the most. Well, he may wrap up about that. Well, the same kind of thing happened with David Foster Wallace. Reality's not that interesting. So he made crap up about me in order to make it a more uh, fascinating story. And that all goes to his fear of being revealed as a fraud. The more people think you're really great the bigger the fear of being a fraud is. So that's a huge part of this narrative, which you cannot explain in 280 characters on Twitter. Plus, there's another element of this that people don't understand. And that is when I talk about suicide, I'm not talking about something with which I have no experience or depression. Because when my mother was killed in a car accident in 1994, the day after her 51st birthday, I became exceedingly depressed. I had always battled a little bit with depression, but after that, I went into a deep depression. And as fate would have it, I got a job as a sportscaster in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the OJ trial hit. And you know I have, and 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 the, my my boss who brought me there got very sick, so I'm working seven days a week, and I'm uh, out of my mind basically, uh, weighing over my head uh, as I'm anchoring the sports seven days a week in a fairly major market in North Carolina for a Fox affiliate, and I make this joke about O.J. Simpson's lack of innocence at, at near the beginning of the trial. I get fired for that, so now I'm living alone in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, I know nobody, and I got fired from my job. My mother's been killed in a car accident. Uh, the following winter, because uh, the only good thing in Raleigh is you can usually play golf uh, most of the year, was the worst winter of all time, that winter of 95, 96. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm literally alone in this little apartment, uh, and I am exceedingly depressed, and I come to the conclusion that I'm going to commit suicide. Now, I'm not going to commit suicide right away because I'm a big believer in making sure that you don't leave any debts. I hate debt of all kind. And I felt like I had a debt to my grandparents, my mother's parents, to not kill myself while they were alive. Now, they were obviously long in years, but they were not uh, at that moment 
uh, real close to death. In fact, they would live a lot longer than I ever anticipated, which is probably why I'm still here today. Because had they died uh, in in short order after that, and this is something I would I told my family members. I remember very specifically telling my brother, who was exceedingly upset about this, that my plan was as soon as uh, my grandparents die, I'm going to kill myself. I have no reason to live. I, I hate this world. You know, OJ gets acquitted, which bugged the crap out of me. I, I hate this business. I have no real career because I don't want to do TV sports anymore. And I just got fired over this thing. And I'm a white male. Where the hell am I going to work? I, I have no reason to go on, except I don't want to kill myself while my grandparents are still alive. Well, as fate would have it, my grandparents end up living a lot longer than I expected. In fact, my grandfather makes it somehow all the way to 2009. Uh, he ends up uh, dying the day after I do the Sarah Palin interview in Alaska uh, that made so much new, uh, new news and noise uh, in early January of 2009. And so because of that, that allows me enough time to get out of this funk, out of this depression, and to revise my view of suicide, which becomes very anti-suicide because it would have been a huge mistake had I killed myself. And I now view suicide, except in extreme circumstances, like, for instance, if you're very old and you're, you're in great pain or you're you know, destitute or, you know, if there's extreme circumstances, I'm still actually theoretically in favor of, you know, some sort of physician-assisted suicide. But David Foster Wallace was young. He was well-to-do. He had a family. He was physically healthy. Yeah, okay, fine. I'm sure he was going through some sort of depression. Whether How much of that was fear of being a fraud? I don't know, but it was certainly part of the equation. And so, to me, that is is an act of stupidity, that is an act of selfishness, and yes, that is an act of cowardice, or that was at least a cowardly act. And so I write on Twitter that I believed that Wallace's suicide, this was again last Saturday, was selfish and cowardly. Again, this is not based on me talking out of my asshole, uh, you know, having no knowledge of him, or, not, or, no, or no experience with suicide or anything like that. But if everyone's just presuming that because it's Twitter and context doesn't matter, facts don't matter, reality doesn't matter. So now this has become a thing. This actually ends up becoming like the, aha, we got him. He said, he somehow, and, and I, I missed this memo. I missed this memo. And, you know, in researching this, I guess there was actually a moment when we decided that it was inappropriate to call suicide cowardly. Shepard Smith, I think it was sometime last year, called somebody's suicide cowardly, or maybe even just said it in general, and he got attacked and had to apologize. Now, how the hell we got to this place, I have no idea. Because, you know, we used to live in a world where the media wouldn't even reference somebody's suicide. It was like referencing or, you know, you, you know, sportscasts don't show the lunatic who runs out on the field naked to get attention. They don't do that because they don't want to enable more lunatics doing the same thing to get their 15 seconds of fame. Well, reporting on suicide used to be the same. That if you committed suicide, that was not reported, and your death would be ignored. Now we've gone in the opposite direction, where somehow committing suicide 
somehow prevents you from being criticized. It's like a halo effect. It's almost a positive, which is mind-blowing to me, especially when you have a family. And now that I have a family, I would be incredibly disappointed and would totally favor me being raked over the coals by whatever criticism anyone wanted to level at me if for some reason I killed myself while my family was still relying on me for whatever they might be relying me on for, on me for, which my wife might question to begin with, but that's another story for another day, whether that's even in existence. But, but I, I digress. The point here is that suicide in general except in extreme circumstances, is selfish and cowardly. And I have reason to believe that David Foster Wallace's suicide was specifically selfish and cowardly. That doesn't mean he was a coward as a person. The act was cowardly. And I remember I have experience with him being cowardly, specifically with regard to him refusing to do an interview with me after the 23-page Atlantic story finally went public. So after I got just destroyed on Twitter over this, there were not one but two articles that were written about this Twitter exchange. Two articles that were written about this. One, ironically, and with great conflict of interest, in the Atlantic itself. The Atlantic, when it was this was written by some guy I had never heard of because he goes by an anonymous Twitter handle, Pope Hat. I can't stand these people that hide behind Twitter accounts that are anonymous. Uh, to me, that goes right to your, frankly, your, your cowardice and, and your lack of credibility. Uh, but he writes an article defending David Foster Wallace that suicide is not cowardly and ripping me to shreds for saying that it is. Now, what's interesting about this is the guy never bothered to contact me for comment. He's writing an entire column ripping me and never bothers to find out, hey, what's the context here? What's, what's the basis of your assessment? What's your experience with David Foster Wallace? What's your experience with suicide? None of that. He just decides, you know what? I got my two tweets. I got my narrative. And that's what I'm going to stick with. And what, what I find hilarious is that in the moronic minds of these medium morons, they think they already know what my motivation must be. My motivation must be that I am still so angry about the David Foster Wallace piece that all these years later, 15 years almost now later, I still have a vendetta against David Foster Wallace, and that's why I'm attacking his suicide. Really? Come on. You cannot be serious! I never think about the David Foster Wallace piece. I have five, probably five or six copies of the, uh, of the magazine somewhere. <laughs> I would not be able to find it uh, in short order. Somewhere in my stack of crap. Um, I only reference it in response to people who ask me about it, which happens fairly regularly. And I tell the truth about it. It's not factually accurate. And my experience with David Foster Wallace was not a positive one as far as whether or not he was really a genius or a credible journalist. Uh, and that's what I've always done. Uh, but I am in no way, shape, or form obsessed by this. In fact, I consider it a badge of honor. It's, you know, 
I have no idea if anyone's going to bother with my obituary when I die, but it will probably be part of my obituary when I die. Uh, David Frum is probably correct that in the long run after I'm dead, the only thing anyone will ever have any record of uh, is is this David Foster Wallace piece. Uh, interestingly, by the way, since I forgot to mention it earlier, when The Atlantic decided to republish this on the 10th anniversary, and they re- clearly the reason why they did this is because it was one of the last major things David Foster Wallace ever wrote, and last chapter in his last book, and he committed suicide. Without the suicide, I'm sure people would have forgotten about this completely long ago. But when they, when this, I found this to be hilarious, when they asked me, uh, or they told me they were going to republish it, they said, would you like to make a statement? I said, sure. Sure, I'll give you a statement. And I gave a very succinct, very short statement saying uh, that that my impression that uh, this was an intended hit piece, but uh, Foster Wallace decided he liked me too much to do a full hit piece. And oh, by the way, there are several inaccuracies uh, in just the first paragraph. And I don't know if I wrote this or not, but I'm I'm pretty confident that you're not going to publish this. (laughs) Something along those lines. Well, I was half right. They published it. But they hit it. They hit it in a link that you had to really go out of your way to find within the republishing of the article, which is classic. You know, they can claim that they got comment from me. And by the way, as I always, you know, half jokingly, half seriously say on Twitter, you might oh, can you can you ask David Foster Wallace about his perspective on the on the article? <gasps> Wait, you can't. You can't because he fucking killed himself. I didn't. I'm still here. He's not. That makes me the only expert. All right? I'm the only expert living on the article. David Foster Wallace forfeited his right to be heard forever and ever on that or any other topic because he cowardly killed himself. Can we be clear about that? That's part of the price you pay for checking out when you kill yourself. And that's part of the reason why I have such disdain for people under those types of circumstances who do kill themselves because I faced that that challenge and I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't, even though there's been a lot of pain, a lot of a lot of pain that has come after the decision not to kill myself. So the Atlantic writes this uh, column bashing me with an out comment. I contact the Atlantic. I say, I'm the guy that you just attacked. By the way, you got a conflict of interest here because you're the ones that published the first piece. Can I respond? They tell me, well, you can write a letter to the editor. Oh, God. Well, what good is that going to do? So I write a quick letter to the editor telling them what it is that the writer would have found out if he had bothered to contact me. And to be clear, I'm like the most accessible person on the planet that's a public person. Uh, and you know, it was very quick, very short, to the point, very succinct. To my knowledge, they've not run it. They have no intention of running it. I, I've not heard anything substantively from them except the form reply. Uh, and so I won't be surprised if they never publish it. That's the nature of the news media in this day and age. That's where we are with all of this. Uh, and then there was another article of course, I'm battling with the, the writer of that article uh, for half a day on Twitter, and they're making no damn sense, and they're, they're coming up with all sorts of bullcrap reasons to substantiate uh, why they never bothered to contact me. Then there's another article on a website I'd never heard of before uh, with the headline, and I love this. This is great. This is, this, this, 
I've actually, we, I think we're going to put up on the free speech broadcasting website just because I love the headline so much. John Ziegler is America's most despised contrarian conservative. John Ziegler is America's most despised contrarian conservative. I don't know if that's accurate or not. I have no way of knowing. Uh, but at least I'm America's most something. <laughs> and, you know, uh, in this day and age, being the most despised uh, contrarian conservative isn't the worst thing. And, you know, I've had people close to me who have said, you know what, this article isn't that bad. <laughs> Well, that's only in comparison to other crap that's been written about me uh, over the years. But, of course, it's the greatest hits, you know, uh, of all the things that I'm supposedly a bad person for, for having done, all the positions I've taken that, that make me a bad person. And the David Foster Wallace uh, situation was obviously at the forefront of this particular article as well. And, again, this person never contacted me. I exchanged with them on Twitter several times. I said, look – at one point he says, well, would you do an interview with me? I said, sure. You want to make a proposal for an interview? Email me. I give him, gave him my email address and crickets, nothing, no response as far as I can tell. Yeah, exactly. That was the response after I agreed I would do uh, some sort of interview. Just give me a proposal. That's the level of our media in this day and age. They're all a bunch of lazy cowards who are not interested in the truth they're not interested in context they just want their narrative and if the narrative is david foster wallace yay john ziegler nay because let's face it there's an audience for that david foster wallace is still very well known he's got a large fan base he's been embraced by the liberal elite even though he killed himself and oh by the way and this is another part of the context that i probably should mention more often I'm not the only person that has accused David Foster Wallace of making shit up. Look at his own damn Wikipedia page. There are academics, liberal academics, who have come to the conclusion, who have studied his work, that he did regularly make crap up. I mean, and so I'm not the only, this is not just me. This is, these are other people who, you know, don't have alleged uh, anger over something that David Foster Wallace wrote about them 15 years ago, which, by the way, I don't have any anger over. I don't. <laughs> I really, I honestly don't. And, you know, it, it, to me, I consider it a badge of honor. Uh, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, I'm sure Gracie, my seven-year-old daughter, will eventually find, <laughs> once she's old enough to be able to endure the content, I think she'll probably find pretty humorous and pretty cool uh, that uh, someone decided to write about their, her daddy that way. Anyway, so that's the David Foster Wallace situation, uh, which is probably way more than you needed to know. And, and by the way, I think I've also just illustrated with that 45-minute commentary how difficult it is to respond in an age of Twitter. Because I, 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 needed, you know, I didn't need all 45 minutes, but it, you know, to give the full flavor and context, it takes a lot of time for you to understand where I'm coming from on this. And everyone always just presumes that they can interpret somebody in, in a short couple of sentences on Twitter while they're at a party watching a football game. It's just, just crazy. It's just unbelievable. It's just flat out ridiculous. But that's the world we now live in. All right, a couple of updates on, in fact, some of the stories that I've been ripped for in this latest episode, specifically uh, my support of Michael Jackson. I did want to mention... And I have no um, 
hard data to back this up, but I'm a big believer that the calendar change, especially when it's a new decade, does make a difference, at least subconsciously, in the way that people make decisions. And it has been my perception, and I listen pretty carefully, it's my perception that already in 2020, I'm hearing a lot more Michael Jackson music on the adult contemporary stations that I listen to here in Los Angeles. And adult contemporary stations are hypersensitive to controversy. And so I think, I don't know this for a fact, it's my sense that there's been a decision by some to play Michael Jackson again, where, you know, we've passed the leaving Neverland thing. It's a new year, new decade, and no other uh, accusers have come forward to back up James Safechuck and Wade Robson. People still like his music, and we're going to play it. That's my perception. Uh, another development that's at least somewhat related to this, Oprah Winfrey has announced that she is bailing on another sex abuse documentary. And this is a very interesting history. This documentary done by some reputable filmmakers was supposed to originally go after Harvey Weinstein. They decided to dump Harvey Weinstein. I don't know why. I don't know whether they felt like it was old news, which doesn't make sense since he's on trial right now as we speak, or whether or not they felt other people had done it to the point where they couldn't say anything new. Who knows? I don't know. But originally they were going to do this on Harvey Weinstein, who was at one point close to Oprah Winfrey. Then they switched from Harvey Weinstein to focusing on Russell Simmons, who I guess is a music executive of some sort. Uh, I don't know his work, but apparently very well-known, very reputable. And he's been accused of, of a bunch of Me Too abuses. And Oprah was going to be the executive producer for this thing, and it was going to air on Apple, which is what she's working for now. That's her platform. Well, she just announced in the last couple of days she is bailing as executive producer on the Russell Simmons documentary. Now, she's claiming, or at least the filmmakers are claiming, that this is not because she no longer believes the accusers, uh, but just because she doesn't believe the movie is ready yet. I don't know what the hell that means. The way I interpret this is that she got pressure because after going after Michael Jackson and now going after Russell Simmons and not going after Harvey Weinstein, that here she is as a black woman going after two black guys and not the white guy. That's, I think, what probably caused her to bail. Because she's not a fact person, let's be clear. <laughs> she's a feeling person. It's whatever her gut tells her, whether some and whether what her self-interest tells her, who is guilty and who is innocent. So my sense is that if Russell Simmons was white, she would still be on this thing. But because this narrative can now be painted that she's being tougher on black guys than she is on white guys, uh, now she she can't do that. Uh, and so that's my guess. Uh, but I do find it to be very interesting, and it just goes to show you how little credibility she really has in this realm, especially as a sex abuse victim herself. She has an inherent conflict of interest. She has a conflict of interest from a corporate perspective and uh, all the machinations that I've referenced previously that I think are much more like a Game of Thrones circumstance than having, than having anything to do with Michael Jackson allegedly sexually abusing James Safechuck and Wade Robson. Uh, but uh, that's the situation with Oprah, which I found to be uh, quite interesting. Uh, it's also important to point out that recent developments in court have made it much more likely that eventually there's going to be a trial between the Michael Jackson estate and James Safechuck and Wade Robson. 
you know, in theory, that's bad news because the judge ruled in the favor of Safechuck and Robson. I actually th- see it as good news because I think the only way you beat this is a trial. The estate has the money and the wherewithal to go forward with this with all the resources they could possibly need. Yes, Me Too makes it easier for a jury to potentially buy this kind of bullshit, but this level of bullshit is so profound uh, that I believe, even I, as a cynic and as a pessimist, believe that a trial would actually be a good thing, and that's the only way you get total exoneration, is if a a jury says, you know what, Uh, no, we're not buying. And I think that's still the most likely scenario. When that happens, I have no idea. I mentioned Matt Lauer. I'm still very closely in touch with him and his efforts to try to get his version of the story out. There could be some uh, major developments on that uh, relatively shortly. I may or may not be involved with that, but I'm still a thousand percent sure, uh, especially, by the way, after uh, Brooke Neville's fiance went after me in a deranged fashion on Twitter, as if I needed any more confirmation that he is innocent and that he has the goods Uh, to prove as much as you possibly can in this environment that he is, in fact, innocent. Uh, I want to mention, since we're in a movie award uh, season here in Los Angeles, that I've seen several of the most high-profile movies. And um, what I found interesting about this is that the four that I'm going to quickly mention all at least have some relationship to a historical event. And I'm, I'm, I'm big into, you know, what's the responsibility of movies to be historically accurate and how they handle historical events. And four of the most high-profile movies of last year fit in this category. Uh, one is a, a movie I saw last night, 1917. Another is uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Then there's The Irishman. And then there's Richard Jewell. Uh, I'm going to quickly go through uh, all of these. I may go through it again as we get closer to the Oscars. Uh, But um, I saw 1917 last night, and uh, from a cinematic perspective, it's amazing. This is about a World War I situation where uh, two soldiers are tasked with getting a message to try to stop a a doomed attack. And generally what I do is I watch the movie first, and then I research the history of it because I don't want it to ruin the movie, and inevitably it does. Uh, This is... What's interesting about this is this is all based upon a story that the director's grandfather told him as a child. So it's inherently bullshit. Uh, It never happened. They don't claim it to be historically accurate, which is fine. It's inspired by this story. There may have been some truth to it. It's amazing from a directorial perspective, and so I recommend you see it, especially in a theater. I saw it in an IMAX theater, which was particularly good. However, I will give you a warning. Much like uh, Passion of the Christ, the trials and travails and the suffering element of the movie, for me, go on way too long. Just, you know, at one point I was all like, oh, just die. I mean, just just die. Just get this over with. This is, just please just die. Uh, I, I lost my patience with, with how many times... We were going through peril. But overall, it's incredibly well done. It's a good story. If you're into it, uh, go see it. My favorite movie of this year was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, This is, to me, a great movie. 
And this is what movies ought to be about. It stars uh, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, who are very good together. Obviously, their star power is, is about as big as it gets in this day and age of diminished uh, star power. Uh, the movie, from a historical perspective, and what I found to be really uh, quite compelling, is that this is supposed to be about the Manson murders. Specifically, the Manson murders of, of Sharon Tate and her friends in a house uh, in Hollywood uh, back in uh, 1969, I guess it was. And what's really compelling and gripping about the movie is if you're somebody who knows anything about the Manson murders, you're on edge the whole movie. You're on edge because you're like you're waiting for disaster to happen. And then when you get to the end... I would not call this to be, I don't want to uh, create a spoiler, uh, so I'm trying to be careful here, but this is clearly not a movie that is based in history. If anything, I would call this historical fantasy. But it's historical fantasy that makes you feel really good. And the performances are fantastic. And I, I hope other filmmakers will will take uh, Quentin Tarantino up on this idea. I would love to see historical fantasy involving the O.J. Simpson murders. That would be fantastic and might even do better business because I'm not sure how many people going to movies in this day and age even remember the Manson murders. That's, to me, one of the weaknesses of this movie is how many people watching even know what the hell the movie's about because I don't think there's that many, at least under the age of 50. I mean, I'm 52, and I don't have any recollection. I was barely alive at the time, and you know, I've, I've watched uh, documentaries or what have you, so I'm I'm educated. But it's not one of the you know to me, it's not nearly as big a deal as the OJ murders, which everybody knows something about, unless you're you know under the age of 30. Uh, so I would love to to see that. Uh, as a side note, you know, uh, my family and I went on a hike this week, and we went to this. Um, this park, which used to be used for old-time movies and literally thousands of westerns, uh, it's really an amazing place because some big-time movies were shot there. Virtually every western was shot there, and there's one particular section where they used to have the uh, the the old-time western town. There was an old-time western town that was just used constantly for different westerns. They just, you know, they would change the signs, and but the, the, the core was there. And we went there to that particular section because we had just seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and we, we researched it, and the Manson compound that was what was known as the Spawn Ranch was supposed to be shot there. And from a movie perspective, this was was really uh, eye-opening to me because we hiked all around this spot and there was no sign at all that Quentin Tarantino had ever filmed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, in this spot. And remember, I had just seen the movie the night before, so it was fresh in my memory, and none of this was close to what i remembered from the movie and my wife was like no this is it this has got to be it there's no other place that they could have done spawn ranch this is it i'm like but there's this just happened a year ago there's zero sign of it there 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 is it doesn't look like what we saw in the movie it doesn't look big enough and sure enough we went back afterwards after the hike and researched it further and lo and behold that's exactly where they shot the whole thing and i was like wow they do, first of all, an amazing job of cleaning up. 
amazing. I mean, there's not a shred of evidence that they ever did this. And two, boy, did they do a remarkable job of hiding the stuff that, that was there, making uh, the set uh, appear far larger than it actually was. Uh, and so that was that was really remarkable. But if you get a chance to watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, to me, it's the best movie of uh, 2019. The Irishman. Now, this movie I find uh, interesting because it's being given a lot of credibility by the media, but not a lot of love. And this fits with the media narrative because the way the media works is, well, wait a minute, it's got uh, De Niro and, and Pesci and Pacino and Scorsese is the director. So therefore, it's got the blessing of all these gods of Hollywood. So therefore, we cannot really criticize it. We're not going to praise it because it's not that good. Uh, and it's really long. But here's the part that I did not know when I watched the movie. When I watched the movie, I thought that the, the main character, Frank Sheeran, was made up. Because it was so preposterous that this person was real. I mean, he is literally the Forrest Gump of every mob event of his lifetime. That's not possible. I thought it was a composite figure or a made-up figure. And, you know, a lot of the movie is about the murder of Jimmy Hoffa, which has always been a great mystery. Uh, it occurred in 1975. Body never recovered. Uh, you know, former head of the Teamsters. And um, I didn't know that much about it, but I knew enough to know that it never been solved, and this movie pretends that it was solved because this guy, Frank Sheeran, had confessed uh, while in a nursing home on his deathbed to this happening. I'm like, wait a minute. And, and, and in the middle of the movie, I, I turned to my wife, and said, this isn't supposed to be a real person, is it? And she Googled it, and yeah, it's a real person. He supposedly did this. He confessed to it. And then I started, after the movie, started researching it. And on a level of uh, 1 to 10, uh, you know, uh, 10 being I witnessed it for myself and I know it to be true, 1 being James Safechuck and Wade Robson's allegations against Michael Jackson, this is a zero. Okay, th 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 there is zero chance that Frank Sheehan did anything close to what the movie claims that he did. I don't believe he killed Hoffa. He might have been there that day. Uh, even that story doesn't make a damn bit of sense because the drive from the restaurant to where he allegedly was killed is like 20, 25 minutes. That makes no damn sense. When there was a mob boss that Hoffa had met with uh, many times before, like two minutes away, that would have been way more uh, sensical. Uh, not to mention that there's no evidence uh, that anything like that happened. They, they found blood in the house. It wasn't Hoffa's. Uh, there's nothing that corroborates this story. And the sheer magnitude of the bullshit of the rest of the movie should make people go, wait a minute, if he's lying about this, then how the hell could he be telling the truth about Jimmy Hoffa? And they have him all over the place. They have him involved in the JFK assassination, giving guns to David Ferry, who was a, a minor, or, ironically, that was the Joe Pesci character in the JFK movie by Oliver Stone, who I don't believe had anything directly to do with JFK's assassination, although he might have inadvertently inspired Lee Harvey Oswald. That's another story for another day. But, I mean, he's involved in everything. There's no evidence he ever killed anybody. And if there was one thing that, to me, proves that this Frank Sheeran had nothing to do with any of this and was uh, not the person he claimed to be, it's that the title of the book, the title of the book on which the movie The Irishman is based is called I Hear You Paint Houses. 
And supposedly, according to Sheeran, Sheeran and the author, I hear you paint houses is something Jimmy Hoffa said to Sheeran to indicate that he's saying, I hear you kill people. And he responds by saying, and I do my own carpentry too, which supposedly means I take care of the bodies. Now that sounds really cute, trite, you know, the mob has its own uh, lingo and language and they're all on the down low and they all know what each other's talking about, except there's a major problem. Major problem. Nobody in the mob, nobody who has researched the mob, nobody who knew Frank Sheeran, nobody anyone can find has ever heard those phrases being used to mean those things. Ever. And in response to that revelation, the author of the book, who is incredibly conflicted, says, well, you know what? The mob in Northeast Philadelphia, which I'm very familiar with because I've grown up in that area, the mob in Northeast Philadelphia has its own lingo. Okay, uh, there's no evidence of that, but here's a bigger problem. Jimmy Hoffa was from Detroit. He was not from Northeast Philadelphia. So how the hell are Frank Sheeran and Jimmy Hoffa in their first conversation exchanging mob lingo that no one's ever heard of before? It's bullshit. It didn't happen. The guy confessed because he wanted to create an inheritance for his daughters, which he did brilliantly because his daughters now own the story which was sold to Corsese and De Niro for the making of the Irishman. And they got duped. It's all bullshit. And then, ironically enough, the Irishman gets almost no negative publicity for its historical inaccuracy. You know what movie did get a lot of heat for alleged historical inaccuracy? Richard Jewell, which is absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. Because Richard Jewell is an actual real story that Clint Eastwood did a pretty darn good job telling the story exactly as it did, except there's a scene where a female reporter, played by Olivia Wilde, who was horrendous. Horrend oh, by the way, I have to mention, Al Pacino in The Irishman gives the worst performance of any major actor I've ever seen in my life in portraying Jimmy Hoffa. He plays Jimmy Hoffa the same way he played the football coach in any given Sunday. That, that, that's how bad Al Pacino is. But Olivia Wilde plays this female reporter in a Richard Jewell movie horrendously. But there's a scene where she's flirting with an FBI agent who gives her information that Richard Jewell was the suspect in the 1996 Olympic Park bombing. And it is portrayed in the media that this is her exchanging sex for a tip from the FBI. And that this somehow is a Me Too violation. Because, oh my gosh, how, how dare, how dare we say that a female reporter might use their sexuality to get a, a tip from a male? By the way, that's, <laughs> that's only been happening since the time that females started being reporters. But that's another story for another day. Not only is that not that unusual, guess what? This reporter is on record having had a romantic relationship with an FBI agent. The FBI agent in question in the movie is a composite. It is a dramatization. In the movie, there is no quid pro quo sex for information on Richard Jewell. And oh, by the way, the essence of this is true. The FBI gave a false leak to this reporter who put it on the front page of the Atlantic newspaper 
and it totally changed everything, putting Richard Jewell through the ringer, destroying his life for several months, and it turned out to be bullshit. So it's unbelievable that of the two movies, the media has portrayed Richard Jewell as being inaccurate, <laughs> and the Irishman, well, we're not going to talk about that. We're not, gonna, we're not even going to mention the fact that the Irishman is total bullshit. And it's largely because Clint Eastwood is considered a conservative. The movie is considered to be pro-Trump because its hero is a redneck who is an NRA member uh, who is against the FBI and against the media. So obviously, that's a pro-Trump movie. Meanwhile, you got all these liberals, De Niro and Pacino and Pesci and Sarkeesy. Uh, uh, we're not going to... Uh, we're not going to criticize them for blatant, catastrophic historical inaccuracies. Uh, finally, in this very, very long edition of the podcast, uh, I am interested in what's going on with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Like everyone else, I blame Meghan Markle. Uh, there's no question that she's to blame for all this. I have no idea how that's going to all turn out. I will just say, do not believe anything you read being reported about members of the royal family and what they allegedly are saying here. It's all made up. And the reason why the media can get away with making it up is that they know in this kind of situation, especially, nobody in the royal family is going to come out and say, I didn't say that. So it's like a free pass to make up whatever crap you want. And I see a lot of allegedly legitimate reporters uh, sharing on Twitter alleged quotes from Prince William or whatever that are obviously bullshit that did not happen. So just, uh, you know, wait until we find out when we hear from these people directly. Uh, LSU and Clemson should be a great game in the national championship in college football. I'm going to go with LSU. And uh, what uh, could should probably be a pretty close game, but I could see LSU winning fairly comfortably depending on uh, how their defense does against uh, Clemson. And finally, I mentioned at the uh, last podcast that uh, 2020, I have no idea how this is going to go down, folks. I told you that this could be a very uh, positive year for me or a very negative year for me. I would say I'm more in the pessimist uh, perspective than I was last week. Uh, we'll see how some things shake out. But I do not know where this podcast is headed. Uh, my my, unless something big happens, we're going to take a couple of week hiatus here as we evaluate things. There's another podcast that may come about related to the Penn State Paterno Sandusky situation. I should know more, much more about that in the next week. But we're probably going to take a couple of weeks off for the World According to Zig podcast, and I will update you when I have more information after that. I really have no idea where we're headed, but when I do, I'll let you know. Until that time, uh, please make sure you do two things. I only ask two things of you. One. Please share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. Number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheik's. S-H-E-E-X.
Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.